Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. We're in James chapter 1. Now maybe today, if I, if I say James chapter 1, maybe what I'm going to accomplish today is the absolute worst Mother's Day sermon ever. <laughs> but hey, we're, we're in James chapter 1, so that's where we're going to stay. That's just kind of how we roll as a church. So if you're new here, um, that's just the way it goes. We, we teach chapter by chapter, book by book through the New Testament. We finished 22 books in the New Testament in the last five years. We got about another year and a half to complete the entire New Testament. And in about seven and a half years that we've been a church, it'll take, and we will have taught every chapter, every verse, every word of the New Testament. So we just follow the order. You know, one of the things that's nice is that, you know, they say that a pastor is not supposed to machine gun his, his sermons, which means like I, I, I know of a situation going on in church or somebody going through something and I, you know, maybe it's lust or something. And so I prepare this whole message on lust because on Sunday I'm going to point the gun at somebody and, you know, hit them with this thing. Well, what, what happens invariably if you do that is that that person that you designed the sermon for, they don't show up that Sunday. And especially if it's Mother's Day. I think in Utah, Mother's Day is like national don't go to church day. That's been our experience. Today's not so bad, but on Mother's Day, it's like I think what the moms wanted for so long was Mother's Day was to stay home. But um, you guys are doing better. We're doing better. As a church, our culture is growing on Sundays of Mother's Day. But I can remember certain Mother's Days here in Utah. Lydia and I were like, where are we? Are we on the moon? There's like, but it was it was national don't go to church day. But um so one of the things that, that we do is we, we, just, we just teach and we cover what the Bible's covering. So we're in James right now. We're going to walk through all five chapters in James. Uh, we try to finish about a chapter, half a chapter a week. And then, and then wherever we end up, when the Bible talks about money, then we're going to talk about money that Sunday. When the Bible talks about lust or when the Bible talks about fear or when the Bible talks about joy or whatever is covered in that topic we we just naturally get to cover it and then one of the nice things is that over the longevity if if you're here long enough and if you you know especially as a visitor and if again if you're a visitor maybe i've seen so i've seen some visitors today so i want to again welcome you and tell you as a visitor um you if you're checking out new churches or you're finding something it really takes a season to see if this is home for you you can't decide in a week or in two weeks you got to give us six weeks but after six weeks if you'll come and you'll be apart for six weeks, then I really feel like your life will change for Jesus. I really feel like, like if you give us six weeks, you'll see a real marked difference in your life and, and a difference in your life for Jesus. And a lot of that comes through um, just the power of teaching the Word of God and walking through and, and loving and being a part of the Word of God. The other thing for our church, if, if you're new or if you've been here for a while, um, one of the things that we say often as far as vision for our churches is that our church is a battleship. It's not a cruise ship, okay? And, and what do I mean by that? I mean by that is, is on a cruise ship, it's a vacation. It's a leisure. You want a, a seat by the pool with a waiter. Um, on a battleship, everybody has a duty to do. Everybody has work that they have to be a part of. They have a, a gun they have to man. They have the kitchen they have to cook. They have some duty on the battleship that, that collectively is the battleship is fighting a war. And for us as a church, for us as a people, this is a battleship, not a cruise ship, okay? Some of you guys, um, maybe you're new and you don't have a battle station yet. That's okay. But just know, and I, and I like to tell you up front because I, I don't want to bait and switch you. You know, there's a cost of discipleship, and there's really a cost of following Jesus. 
And, and as Christ followers, as Jesus followers, we, we want to be a people who make a difference for the gospel. Amen? We want to be a people who, who God uses to change other people's lives and do good. And, and not just, um, although a lot of what church is, it is nurturing, it is encouraging. And we go out in the world and we do life and we get beat up and um, we, we face things and we come. And part of what we want to do is, is lick our wounds and love one another and encourage one another and equip one another. That's really the purpose of the local gathering, um, according to Paul, is for the equipping of the saints. So that's another function, that as we come together, we, we equip. And the Bible says that basically the function of the local church, and I, I want to say something about that too, is that Jesus started the local church. What, we do, what we're doing right now, you guys, is not man's invention. Okay? This is Jesus' idea. And, and when we look around the world globally and we think, oh, man, the church is in, in disarray, and at times it is, our own church included. It's got full of people. We could be perfect, but we'd have to get rid of all the people. As soon as you add a bunch of people, you, you lose perfection. But that's okay because God loves and works through and, in, and, and with imperfect people. But the function of the church is to act like a wave. A wave goes in and it comes out. It goes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. And, and same thing in church. You come in, you get filled up, you grow, you get, you get encouraged, you get edified, you get the word of God. And then you go out in what's the real mission field and you do ministry. You do work on the battleship, the station of, of sharing the gospel, of being a Christ follower. And, and there's a, a cost in discipleship. Amen? So I want to encourage you guys that, again, that, you know, for all of us, and, and as God calls, and we try to not put an undue burden on anybody. You know, like, oh, you've got to serve Jesus. You've got to find a place of ministry to, to, to be used by God. And, you know, and, and all those things are true, but, but not in the way that it's a, it's a burden that we put on ourselves. But what we believe here, what we teach here is Jesus. Okay, that's why we put our sign up, because it just can't be more plain than that. It's about Jesus. And, and if Jesus calls us to, to do ministry, then he has to also equip us. And you can't go out and do ministry and, and serve God without the power and the equipping of God. So we start with Jesus. We get to know Jesus, and, and we don't believe in, in religion. Matter of fact, we, we, we believe that religion is the enemy of the gospel. Religion is one of the things that hurts the gospel more than anything else is man's attempt to try to please God. That's not what we want to do here. Our attempt is to know Jesus and know him intimately and personally and have fellowship and relationship with Jesus, as John tells us, that truly we have fellowship with one another, and in that our fellowship is with Jesus Christ, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, so where we find ourselves today is in James chapter 1. And um, we left off last week kind of in the middle of James chapter 1. And I want to start with a little bit of a review about James. What do you guys remember about the author of the book of James? Somebody tell me something you remember from last week about James. He's Jesus' brother. Okay, let's start with that. Mary and Joseph, um, from what we can tell and what we gather when we put the pieces together, all in the New Testament, is that Mary and Joseph would have had um, other other sons and daughters, the Bible says. So I think that as we put the pieces together, it looks like Jesus um, was the oldest of seven brothers and sisters. So in Mary and Joseph's house, there would have been nine people. And I'm pretty sure Mary, uh, Joseph, who was a carpenter, who was um, a blue-collar worker, and he wasn't a carpenter the way that we might think of a carpenter today, framing houses out of wood. Um, back in those days, the houses were mostly built out of stone and brick, and um, the woodworking and the carpentry had more to do with stuff that went inside the house, furniture, um, different things, tables, chairs, different 
um, um, rails, those kind of woodworking. So Jesus would have worked with his dad in the shop. He would have worked with, you guys ever see that bumper sticker? I don't see it anymore. It used to be common. I used to see it all the time. And it said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Because Jesus was under his dad, Joseph, a Jewish carpenter. And so Jesus would have grown up very normal, very humble. And he had seven brothers and sisters. And I'm sure that Joseph didn't have a 10-bedroom house there in Nazareth. And that Joseph and Mary maybe had their own place in the house. But that Jesus and his brothers and his sisters would have lived very closely. Maybe, maybe James, who was the next oldest brother of Mary and Joseph, maybe James and, and, and Jesus as young people shared a bed or, you know, definitely a bathroom and living space. And the interesting thing about Jesus' brother James here, the author, is that he doesn't become a Christian until after Jesus rises from the grave. It wasn't until after the resurrection that James became a believer. How do you grow up with Jesus? And, and I guess, you know, that's exactly how you do it, right? How many of you guys would believe that your brother is God? No way, right? No way in heck. I don't care how good they was and how good he was. Jesus was without sin. So that would have created another dynamic for James that would have been frustrating, is having to hear Mary say, how come you can't be more like your brother Jesus? He always makes his bed, right? Like, he never leaves dishes in the, in the kitchen sink. So, so Jesus, I'm sure he would have been with his brothers and sisters, very nurturing and very loving and compassionate and teaching, and, and yet he would have been very normal. Jesus would have lived somewhat a very normal life for 30 years because he couldn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. The law of Moses that Jesus had to follow and complete. One of the ministries, as we know, of, of the Lord Jesus was he had to fulfill the, the law of Moses 100%. Nobody in the flesh could ever, and the whole point of the law of Moses was to show us that we can't do it in our flesh. But in order to, to fulfill it, in order to complete the law, Jesus had to, to complete it. He had to fulfill it 100%. So he lived 30 years perfect life with no sin according to the law of Moses the law of Moses said that you couldn't be a rabbi until you were 30 years old and so not long after Jesus's 30 30th birthday he's invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee John chapter 2 you remember what he did at that wedding he turned water into wine and performed his first miracle and from that point on Jesus's earthly ministry began and he he called shortly after that and in that season 12 men to gather alongside him and for three years jesus walked with and taught personally 12 men um as as he went and he poured into and he trained that he was going to leave these 12 men to completely change the entire world and to carry on what who jesus was and what he taught and give us and bring us the word of god and that's exactly what happened and, and we want to continue that same type of ministry that Jesus did today and in that one-on-one -on -one, in that discipleship kind of model that we we spend time personally each one of us with Jesus and as you spend time with Jesus as the disciples did that you grow and you become more like him and and he, he he empowers you and he commissions you how many of you guys feel like man if I could have lived at the time of Jesus then uh, believing and and understanding and knowing Jesus would have been so much easier I could I could then get it right don't we feel that way? We feel like, man, if I had the, if I could have been like Peter or seen Jesus, or if I could pick another time in history to live, I would have loved to live at the time of Jesus. 
But what's fascinating, listen, what's fascinating about Jesus is he told the disciples and you and I that it's necessary that I go away. Because if I go away, then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, a helper, a comforter who's going to be with you. And that you and I today, listen, you got to get this. You and I today, we have the same opportunity that the disciples did to know Jesus personally and intimately. Well, back to James. James being the the half-brother of Jesus and not being a disciple or a believer until after the resurrection, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to his brother. And when when James saw Jesus post-resurrection, I'm sure that Jesus clung to him. I'm sure that Jesus embraced him. And at that point, James realizes that his brother is God. And it's true. James has a reputation and had a reputation in secular history and in, and in biblical sources as being a, an amazing prayer warrior. James had the nickname of Old Camel Knees. They say, and I don't know how much of this becomes tradition and folklore, how much of it's true, but, but you can read this stuff. And it says that James would spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day in the temple in Jerusalem on his knees praying. He was eventually martyred from his, for, for, for his, his faith in Jesus. He died as a martyr, murdered brutally, thrown off a roof and then beaten with blunt force um, trauma to his head until he died. They said when they put James, when they went to put James in his coffin, that they couldn't straighten out his knees because he had spent so much time in prayer and on bed and his knees were so calloused and broken up that they couldn't make him straight to fit in his coffin. They couldn't straighten James's knees and we can't bend ours. And, and, and part of me feels like what, what would have motivated that and James to be such a man of prayer? I think part of it is maybe he felt a little bit like he wasted 30 years. Once he realized that Jesus was God and that he's like, man, all that time, I was giving him a hard time. I wouldn't share my, my cereal with him. I, wouldn't, I didn't want him around. I didn't want him in my room. Get out of here. You're bugging me. No, you can't have any. All those regrets that James would have had, knowing that he grew up with God as a brother, that James laid in his life, all he wanted to do was spend time with Jesus. All he wanted to do was be alone with his brother. And so he would spend time in, in prayer um, intimately and personally with Jesus in prayer. He spent a lot of time in prayer. James became um, a, a very prominent person in Jerusalem and in the early church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 15, the early church is, is growing. Paul has already started his missionary journeys, and Paul is traveling the known world, and he's starting churches in Colossians and in Ephesus and um, in all over the known world in Thessalonica and those areas, and Paul is um, beginning his ministry. Well, they're having a problem because Paul is leading a bunch of people to Jesus, and a lot of them are Gentiles. And, and the, the Jewish church is trying to figure out what part of the, the law of Moses do the new Gentile believers have to follow. So they have a council in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And in there, they're trying to solve the question of, of what part of the law of Moses do, do the new Gentile believers have to follow. And, and James is the one who makes the final decision. James as the, the leader of the early church. And so James is, is a man of, of, of great devotion. He's somebody who I'm sure had, you know, tons of regret having felt like he wasted some years to know Jesus and he didn't want to waste one more second and he spent his time in prayer. 
Now, one of the things I told you guys last week, as we'll get into this here in a second, is um, I'm just the messenger, right? Don't don't hate the messenger. I don't I don't write the mail. I just deliver it because I, I, I preface that because I think James and, and kind of rightfully so James has a reputation for being very direct. When you read the, the epistle of James, it has a tendency to step on your toes. It has a tendency to to call you out maybe on some hypocrisy in your life. It forces you to to face some things that are true that you may not want to face. Now, James, as the brother of Jesus and as somebody who was a man of prayer and very direct, he has kind of two main um, things that, that, that I think is very safe and biblical that he wants to communicate to us. So get these two things and, 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 and you'll get or you'll start to understand the book of James a little better. Okay. Number one is James is encouraging all through the book a level, a heightened level of Christian maturity. Everybody say maturity. Okay, everybody say puberty. Okay, now look at your neighbor and say, ha ha, you said puberty. Just kidding. Um, so, so he wants us to grow up. We can say that. Everybody say grow up. Okay? He wants us to mature. And, and one, of the, one of the things that, that is true about the church is about us as believers is sometimes we can act in such a way that is immature. We act like babies. We, we get offended by things. We, we, we bicker. We fight with one another. We argue about doctrine and who's right and who's wrong when, when Jesus doesn't even care about those things. When Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when people come up and, and sometimes if they have a, a legitimate theological question, I'll do my best job to answer it. But there's other times where I could tell could tell that they heard some sermon or some message or read some book and they already have some preconceived notion and, and they say, oh, hey, let me, I want to ask you about this. And I say, where did you come up with that? Oh, I just came up with it spending time with Jesus and in prayer. Liar. There's no way because I saw that book and I know exactly where you got that weird idea. You read that somewhere. You got that somewhere. And, and they just want to argue. Listen, I have no time to argue. Listen to what I tell them. I, I, I tell them, listen, have you... Do you, first let me ask you this, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? And do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Anybody in here can raise their hand and say, I love the Lord the God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I have no room to grow in that. And I love my neighbor and everybody around me so much, I love them more than myself. Can anybody truly raise their hand and say they have no room to grow in either one of those areas? And what I say is, well, listen, the very basic ground level Christianity is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. So until you master those two things, let's not argue about doctrine. Let's not argue about can you lose your salvation, about free will versus predestination. And, 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 and again, those, for somebody who has sincere questions about theology and doctrine, let's unpack those things. Let's talk about those things. Let's see what the Bible says about them. Let's figure it out. But in, but in the case of just arguing and bickering and fighting, don't we have bigger fish to fry? Don't we, have, don't we have things out there, people out there that are hurting that we can love and the gospel that needs to be shared around the world? And we spend time, I don't have any time, fighting with one another. You know, I tell you guys all the time, one of the things that we try to do here at Calvary Chapel, and if you, you know, you can go online and you can find all kinds of things about Calvary Chapel. 
It's a worldwide church started in 1968 um, by a guy named Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. It started as just a non-denominational church plan of teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Chuck took a bunch of guys. He had them in his living room five days a week. Greg Laurie, John Corson, Skip Heitzik, um, Raul Reese, and, and, and other guys. And then he sent them out, and they started churches. And then they started raising people up and brought people into their churches and in their living rooms and started training them up. And they went out and started churches. And before you knew it, by 1994, Calvary Chapel was the largest non-denominational church in the world and just started with just grassroots teaching the Bible. And one of the things that's happened as Calvary Chapel has grown is we've gained more rules than we had in the early days. Um, And and, and we have a, a huge emphasis on having good doctrine. It's one of the things we pride ourselves on. We, we, we believe that you start in Genesis and if you go to Revelation and you, when you make the ideas about doctrine, about philosophy, about things, about the heart of God, you have to take into consideration what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation. And it's a crock pot. And when you're, when, you're, when you're developing theology, everything has to go in the crock pot to come up with the best answer. But I want to say this, as much as, as we want to have, and, and, and as a ministry, as a movement, Calvary Chapel, we, we want to be people who are true to the Word of God. Listen, I don't care about being right. I could care less. I, I don't want to be more right than the church down the street. That's not my personality. That's not why I'm here. It's not why I do what I do. You know, there's, there's good churches and good people doing things a lot better than we do in other places. And, 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 and I could care less. What I want to do is, is I want to I love people. I want to serve people. I want to I see people's lives change for Jesus. And, and before I care about being right, I want to be loving. I want to serve. I want to I reach out, and I want to stop fighting over um, non-essential issues and, and start working together in unity to love the body of Christ and see people's lives change for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, um, James is, is, so the first thing is Christian maturity, and that's what I was talking about a little bit, having some maturity. And part of having maturity, you guys, is that we see Christian living in a big picture, right? You know why we struggle oftentimes in a lot of issues is this thing, right? You only see very dimly. You, you, everything that you see, you can see through. You guys do that for me. Make little tiny holes in your fingers. Hold on, let me get my camera out. And the, what you see through that is the way that sometimes we see life. The way that, that, that we see Christianity. And what James wants us to do, you guys, is have eyes wide open. See the big picture. See the idea that, yeah, we, we you know what, There's, we're, we're fighting about the things in the gospel or doctrine or theology with the church down the street. And, and there's people in other countries who don't even have a Bible in their own language. I, have you guys seen the picture? Go on, go on Facebook. Go on, on Facebook. Go on YouTube. Go somewhere and find it. Chinese Christians receive Bibles for the first time. This box shows up. It's full of Bibles in in the Chinese language. And a group of of Christ followers in China who have gotten saved and have never owned or had a Bible, they're tearing into these boxes and the joy and the excitement because they're going to get a Bible in their own language for the first time. And I mean, it would be like gold was in the box. It would be like something, you know, magical for us. What would it take? You know, I could put a box of Bibles here in the middle of this room, and you guys could all walk in, and you'd see that. And what's that? What's a big box of Bibles? You'd go to your seat, and you'd sit down, and wouldn't think twice. But for these guys, it was everything. 
Bible in their own language. And then the second thing, so the first thing is for us maturing, growing up, right? Having a little depth of our faith. And then the second thing that James wants to deal with is hypocrisy. And and I I would be, um, wouldn't be honest if I didn't say for myself that I deal with, that we all deal with to some degree, some levels of hypocrisy. Okay? It doesn't mean that we, we purposely have um, if we do have some, some hypocrisy issues, we need to deal with those. We need to get them right. We need to repent of them. We want to be, be sincere in our faith. You don't want to pretend to people on the outside to be more religious and holy than you are. It's hypocrisy. Just be yourself. Be who you are. Be genuine. Okay? Now, do we struggle, like I said, for every one of us, maybe with, at certain times, some certain levels of hypocrisy? Sure. But James is dealing with that, and he wants us to be people that um, are not... Uh, have hypocrisy. Hey, so real quick review. I want to talk about this and then we're going to go on to where we left off last week. Verse 2 says, my brethren, what does that say? Verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So that's the first thing that James hits you with. How many of you guys count it all joy when you fall into various trials? I couldn't find it. I wanted to show you guys today on the, on the screen. Maybe somebody will know it. I thought it was Geico. Someone said it might have been Allstate. But there was a commercial, um, I think insurance commercial, and something like really terrible happens to this guy. And they're like, not everybody loves it when you get tarred and feathered. And they show this guy, he's getting tarred and feathered. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Anybody? Is it Allstate? Yeah. One of them I remember was, it was, a, it was a Chinese guy, and he, something was happened bad to him, and he was all happy and excited. Uh, I wish I could show that commercial, because it illustrated so well, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, listen. James is not saying that when you smash your hammer with a thumb, that hammer, that hammer you've got to be pretty tough if you smash your hammer with your thumb. But if you smash your thumb with a hammer, that you're supposed to be excited and laugh, and, oh, that's so great, look, it's flat and it's purple. But, but not in that particular way. The word joy that James uses is the same word that Jesus uses, the same word the Bible uses all the way throughout for joy. It's to have joy. But listen, that what it's talking about is for us as believers, and this is such a value in Christian living. It, it, it is such a level of maturity that, that we handle life differently than those who don't have Jesus. And that we have the ability to have a big picture mentality and we count it all joy when we fall into various trials because we know that, that we've read Revelation and we see that we win in the end. We have a big picture mentality. We, 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 you know, doesn't, we don't care who's president. We have our druthers and we vote and we, we, but when somebody bad and we get, you know, I remember Lydia, dad, dad was telling the story of, of Lydia and Lydia was like, I don't know when Bill Clinton was elected the first time she was like 13 or something. And, um, and, and, and she was in her room bawling, crying and, and Gerald comes in her room and he's like, Lydia, what's wrong? And she said, Bill Clinton is president. The world is over. And he said, oh, no, don't worry about it. You know, like, and, and it doesn't matter because we, 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 we have a big picture mentality, right? Like we want certain things a certain way, but at the same time, we still have our hope in Jesus. Yeah, it doesn't matter who's president, who's still sitting on the throne no matter what. Jesus is still on the throne. A friend of mine I grew up with in fourth, since like fourth grade. Really, honestly, one of my best friends in the whole world. We did a lot of life together, and today he hates me. And part of why he hates me is because when Trump got elected, he, he went so ballistic, and he just believed the world was over, and he was so angry 
and, and, and he was just really mad at me. We were having some conversation. And he was like vitriolic angry. And I said, Ronnie, I said, dude, we've been friends since the fourth grade. And, and, and what do we care? I don't care. Like, and then you're willing to throw it away because of who I voted for or because who president is? And he was. And he was angry. And he didn't want to talk to me or be friends with me anymore because of my political views or because of who I voted for. But to him, his worldview is that this is all we have. And that he doesn't see a big picture. And he doesn't see that it doesn't matter who's in the White House, that Jesus is still on the throne and we win. Jesus is still on the throne and he's coming back. And that there's going to be victory and God is still going to take care of us as his people no matter what. And for him, with with no worldview that's outside of, of, of what's under the clouds, it devastated his world. And to him and his world, it was a big deal. You know, I put up with eight years of Obama. <laughs> I didn't trip. I didn't like it. But I, I you know, it, it was what it was. It, but it didn't bother me. I didn't freak out because Jesus was on the throne, right? Now, I don't mean to alienate somebody who's maybe on the other side of the house because Jesus loves Democrats and Republicans. And I got to tell you, Jesus is not a Republican. He was Jesus. So we count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Why? Because we have a big picture mentality, right? Because even though, yeah, the situation, it may stink in itself. But we're not going to lose time whining and complaining and, and being stuck in our trials and our tribulations. Because, you know, there's also, and then what he's going to go on, he's going to say is that God can only teach you certain things through trials and tribulations in your life. There are certain things that you will never learn. You will never get a depth of character until you face some things in your life. And so when God allows you to face certain things in your life, count it all joy because God is doing a work. You know, oftentimes hardship creates character. You guys understand that? Amen. So then, hey, listen, where we left off, let's pick up there last week. I'm going to start in verse number um, 19. It says, so then we have 15 minutes left, and we are going to be done on mother, for Mother's Day on time. It says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Pretty practical. Again, James is a no-nonsense guy. He says, God gave you two ears that you can't close, and one mouth that you should close. So be slow to speak, swift to hear, quick to listen. You know, we have Proverbs that that say this same thing about us as Christians. You know, I've never been in trouble for something I didn't say. There's times where maybe I regretted it or I wanted to say something or, you know, needed to say something to somebody that I maybe didn't say. But for the most part, I'm, I'm in trouble for the things that I do say, right? We get in trouble for the, we wish we had things back that we said. But I've never once in my life been in trouble because I listened to somebody. Well, you listen to me. Never once. And so James tells us in a very practical way, beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Okay, and then he's going to go on and he's going to say, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want you guys to hear this. Listen. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, um, one of the things that we, we've talked about in our men's study, we, we, we debate things, we talk about things in the men's study, and um, a couple of the men at times have shared with me 
You guys are in here. I'm not going to dime you out by name, but maybe. Um, but, you know, they've said stuff, and I get it, because it's who we are as men. And maybe other men are going to relate to this. But when we, see the, um, when we see the injustices taking place in the world, when we see the evil and the hypocrisy and the lies, and, and we see the evils that are happening in politics and in wars and in countries, you know, some of the men have shared with me as Christians that, that really what, what's in their heart, what they want to do is, is take up arms against these things and kill some of these people. You know, and as men, that's kind of the way God has wired us a little bit. He's geared us a little bit to be protectors, to be um, those that, that, that provide and protect. And so, yeah, when we see injustices, sometimes we, we do feel a call to arms. And without a doubt, there are righteous calls to arms in righteous times. But, but here, I think as I, as I was thinking about that, I read this verse this morning again, and um, it kind of jumped out at me where it says here that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, um, I read an article, Gerald posted, if you want to see it, you can go to CBN News. I recommend that. It's a news channel. They give Christian sources and, and different news. They cover um, lots of different topics in the Christian world, an easy way, a good way to get news. But I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday on their news, CBN reported, and the, and the article says, the prince of ISIS gets saved. He had a dream and a vision of Jesus. And I want to tell you that many, many Muslims around the world are in, in secure and isolated places where there's no Bibles and there's no other Christians are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through dreams and visions. And, and so the, the prince of ISIS, he, he becomes a Christian because he had a dream of Jesus and he shared a testimony that he, he's never felt love before until he, know, until he met Jesus. And, and what changed his heart and his life was he felt and experienced real love for the first time in Jesus. And he was one of, and I don't know where he ranks and how he fits. You can read the article for yourself. He's called in the article the Prince of Isis, but he was a high-ranking a ruler within Isis, and he came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, reported this week in the news. Now, we, we could kill that guy, right? And what happens if, and sometimes we feel like we should because he's personally responsible for murdering Christians in the world. And, and, but what happens if we kill that guy? I mean, what happens to the void that it created when we killed the leader? It just creates a vacuum, right? And, and, and what happens? There's ten guys just like him, probably worse than he is, who are just going to fill in tomorrow. We, we, we could kill the leader of, of, of ISIS today, and tomorrow there will be another one in his place, and he'd probably be worse. And not going to affect him. But i tell you what is effective. When that leader of ISIS this week, or reported this week, when he became a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what he's going to do? He's going to affect real change. His heart is going to change. He's going to lead others to Jesus. He's going to effectively, from the inside, stop and change things and do it. And again, you know, it says here, it says here that um, in verse 21, and this all goes together, 19, 20, 21, and then 21, he says, Now therefore lay aside all filthiness, overflow wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. It says, the idea, listen, let me tell you something, Christians. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, this is what the Bible tells you and says for you and your life. It's real, 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 real complicated. It's, it's super, super deep theologically. You almost got to kind of be next level to understand what I'm about to say. Um, but, but I'm going to try it because some of you may get it. Most of you won't. But um, this is what the Bible says for you as Christians. Be nice. Is that hard to understand? Do you need a college degree to get that one? 
Is that something we can all just understand? Like, why, why is it so strange to us that, that the idea that, that we're supposed to as Christians, wouldn't it be, to me, and maybe I don't know, I just have a different, I don't know, whatever, I'm bubbly personality, I guess. I'm just such a nice guy, you know, but no, I don't know. But I, to me, it may, it's like common sense. If you're like Jesus and you're Christ follower, that, that, that you should be kind to people. It should be nice. And the Bible says it over and over and over again. Paul said, be ye kind one to another. James tells us here the same thing. Be nice. Your wrath doesn't produce the, the, the righteousness of God. And we want to go out and we want to wrath and we want to tell other people why they're wrong and fix their doctrine. And, you know, so many times in church, you know what happens in church, you guys? It happens in this church and every church. It's happened a bunch of times since I've been here in six years. We get people that come and at some stage or another, they, they tell me that, that, that basically that they're the, the police dog for the church. It's just a gift they have. They've been called to, to be the watchdog for church and, and, and call out all the unrighteousness and all the things we're doing wrong. And, and then I'll, I'll just try to nicely, lovingly tell them that, um, you know, that, that they, they probably should stop smoking crack. Um, that, that that's not Bible. That God didn't call you to be the self-appointed watchdog. It doesn't exist. There's no gift of being a jerk in the Holy Spirit. It, it, it doesn't exist. Now, you, you can affect change. I'm not saying you can't come to a place and affect good and positive change, but that's not usually the attitude that, that the watchdog personality or mentality comes with. It's like you're, you're the self-appointed um, watchdog of, of, of life, and whether you're doing it in church or probably have that same personality in other places, that it's your call to go around and tell everybody else why they're doing it wrong. I personally don't have any time for that. Right. And, and we don't want to waste time. And, and, and again, that gift of, you know, somebody says, oh, I want to give them a piece of my mind. And I say, well, you might not want to do that. You don't got much to give. You might want to hang on to everything you got. And, and simply look just in love. It's the love of Jesus that changes people. And so James, that, and then he says, verse 22, one of the cruxes of this whole chapter, right? You guys got to get this next one. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. So um, you guys are responsible, you know. That's what the Bible says. Is, is what, if, what if you're not doing something or you're doing something, but you do it in good conscience because you don't realize that it's, it's offending God or it's against the law or the, or, or the heart of God? There, there is a real innocence in that because you are responsible for what you know. But let me, let me give you the bad news. You guys know a lot here. You have the word of God. You come to church every week. You have the Bible in your lap. And maybe something you don't know, you, you can't really claim for innocence because you, you, you should have known. And, and you had it right there the whole time. And, and, and yet you, you wouldn't spend the time to, to, to find it. But we're responsible for what we know. And, and, and so when we know, and, and in church I think it's, it's a place where maybe we could be guilty of this. And, and the Bible says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Like a man who saw himself in the mirror and, you know, liked or didn't like what he saw and walked away. And he forgot what was in the mirror. He had to come back and look in the mirror again because he forgot what, what he saw. So when the Holy Spirit begins to speak something to your heart, it's real simple. Be obedient to what it is God's calling you to do. Be, be obedient to, to, the, to the, what God has, has spoken to you. When you learn something, when you read something, when you see something, James is dealing with, remember, two things, maturity and hypocrisy. Everybody say maturity. 
and hypocrisy. I'll ask you that over the next four or five weeks, and that's, that's going to be the answer the next four or five weeks. Hypocrisy, or we'll do it in order, mature, maturity and hypocrisy, those two things that James is dealing with. So here he's dealing with the hypocrisy of us. You know, we get full of all this Bible knowledge, and then we don't do nothing with it. We come and we get Jesus, Jesus, Jesus for an hour and a half, and then we, we check the box, we go get in our car, and by the time we hit the, the key fob on our car to unlock our car in the parking lot, we've forgotten what, what we just did for the last hour and a half, and we're focused on what we're going to do for the whole next week until we come back to church again. And then we're going to be in church for an hour and a half a week. And James calls it out as hypocrisy. That's why I say, listen, we're a battleship, not a cruise ship. And really, if you come and you're a part of a battleship, then you understand that you have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. This, this last week, I was reading this and studying this, and my son came home and told me a story. And I thought, oh, man, that is so perfect. He, he went to a clinic. We had um, at Tooele High, they had uh, a shooting coach come in, and, and he's like world-renowned. But one of the coaches at Tooele High, one of the basketball coaches, his name is uh, Alma Parker. He's a doctor uh, practitioner, family practitioner here in town, and he coaches the freshman team this year. Well, he has a friend, he's from Georgia, that is a, an NBA shooting coach. The guy's like 70 years old now, but he's trained with Michael Jordan, um, currently working with Steph Curry, um, Curry's brother, uh, Kobe Bryant, all the, all the big players ever, he's trained them. So he comes, and he's teaching a shooting clinic at Twill High this last week. And so the guy is amazing. He's like almost 70 years old. He's there for like six hours of instruction, and never once in six hours does he actually miss a shot. The guy can just shoot like nobody's. The only time he missed a shot is he was saying, he was telling the kids. He said, hey, if, if you, he, he had one of the kids do a drill, and he watched him do it. And then, and then when he was over, he said, did you notice where he missed? He missed on the back of the iron. That's because, and he explained what the kid did with his body, which will affect the shot to hit the back of the iron. So he's like, if you, if you do this and you shoot, it'll hit the back of the iron. So he does it, hits the back of the iron. And he says, if you do this, it'll hit the right side. He shoots it, hits the right side, and falls off. He says, if you do this, it'll hit the left side. He shoots it, hits the left side, and falls off. Like, that's impossible to do. If you know anything about basketball, like, call your misses that way. If you do this, you'll miss it short. He shoots it, hits the front of the iron, and falls down. And then like 27 in a row, like swish. So he's anyways, he's teaching a shooting clinic to the high school kids and he tells them a story. And he said, he's telling them to take the things that they've learned and apply them to the games. That, that don't come to practice and, and learn these new tricks that I'm showing you, these new changes to your shot, and then not let that translate to your everyday playing as a basketball player when you get in the game. He said that he, he, he said there was, a, a, a turkey who could fly and he said he was the only turkey that could fly and all the other turkeys were could only walk and flap a little bit but they couldn't fly and so they came to the turkey who could fly and they said hey none of us can fly but you can fly and so the turkey who could fly he spent all day teaching all the other turkeys how to fly and 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 he was successful and at the end of the day all the turkeys walked home don't be the turkey that walks home, right? Like the things that we learn, we, we apply them to life. And James says that about, um, about the word of God. And listen, this is something that um, once you know it and once you have this verse in your repertoire, it's something that God will continue to bring to your mind. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
He'll, he'll call you out through the Holy Spirit on your own hypocrisy, on, the own times of, on your own times of disobedience. And you'll, you'll now hear this going on in your life when, when God's calling you to do something. And God will say, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And then in verse 23, it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and is a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But when he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he, did, in what he does. Who, who is or what is and how do we look into the perfect law of liberty? Jesus is the perfect law of liberty, okay? And in Jesus, all these things. Now, let me, let me, let me kind of maybe encourage you guys with this. And this is kind of a, I don't know, this is a, this is a, a concept that I, I try to preach and teach in, in a lot of different angles. And um, as simple as it is, it, it's all about Jesus. So as we talk about being doers of the word, Maybe we leave out of church today and we think, man, I got to be a doer. I got to do, do, do. But what, what do I do? We're going to go on here. And James is going to say, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their time of need. And you're like, well, I, I, pure and undefiled religion is to minister to widows and orphans. Well, I'm not really ministering to widows and orphans. And pastor said that I got to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And, and so I want to um, you know, I want to do, do, do. And, we, and, and, and you leave a little frustrated because you're focused on what you should be doing for Christ. Amen? Anybody? anybody? So here's, here's what I want to encourage us with and what, what we preach here and what we, what we believe is true and is, first of all, that it's, it, it's relationship. That what God wants for you is relationship. We sang a song today called Good, Good Father, right? Okay. So as a good father, a good father, what he wants for his children is he wants to know them intimately and personally. And Jesus wants to know you intimately and personally. And if you want to figure out what God wants in your life, what he wants you to do, where he wants you to serve, it starts with looking into the perfect law of liberty, which is Jesus. So, so get your eyes and keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you focus on Jesus, God will begin to put things on your heart that he wants you to do for him. We don't live under condemnation because we're not out there doing more than we are. We just spend time with Jesus. And we say, Jesus, is there, is there something I could be doing or should be doing? Jesus, will you open doors for me? Will you give me opportunities? And we focus on knowing and serving Jesus, and then he puts things in our path. Amen? Okay, we're almost done. And you guys can close your Bibles. <clears throat> it says in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, again, I've already said we don't like the word religion in our circles. Some, some people ask me, oh, pastor, you're, you're a religious person, right? And I usually, for shock value, I try, to, I try to get this one over on them. But I say, no, I'm not a religious person. Oh, you're a pastor, right? Yeah, I hate religion. What? And I try to explain to them that religion is different than relationship. And what we do here is not religion. It's it's relationship. It's it's personal um, relationship with Jesus. And um, religion is the enemy of the gospel. Religion ties weights on us. But but here James uses the term religion, and we we can use that term in a, in a good context. That it may, or maybe spiritual, being spiritual. But James just calls us out again on another hypocrisy. He says, if you call yourself religious, but your tongue is out hurting people, and if you if you're not controlling your tongue. 
then, then basically you're a liar. John tells us the same thing. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. You can't love God and hate your brother. James says you can't call yourself religious or a Christ follower or a Christian if you can't control your tongue. If you're out there, you know, using your tongue in an evil way all the time and constantly ripping people up and tearing people out, then you, you can't consider yourself religious. It's hypocrisy. and Cut it out. And then he says pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now you can close your Bibles. Pure and undefiled religion. Have you guys ever heard that, that rephrase? Pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, just in, an, in, in, a, in a context, for us, for us, if you're part of this church, you're a member of this church, I'll tell you this. You, you serve widows and orphans because we have a, a mission here to Malawi, Africa, that's an orphanage to, to um, one of the, pla- the place in the world that has the most orphans in the world. And in Africa, where 80% of the world's orphans are, in Malawi is the highest concentration in Africa. And so we are a part of a work in Malawi, Africa, that, that, is, that is helping orphans on the streets, most of whose parents die of AIDS. It's very, <clears throat> it's very tragic and, and very evil what's happening in Africa and a lot of these places. There's, there's a belief among um, some of the African men that part of the ministry there is educating, and we are making a difference in changing this and in educating this. But in, in rural places and in Africa, there's a belief that, that in order to be cured from AIDS, you have to have sex with a virgin. And this is true, and this is really happening. And, and so what's happening is the, the men who have AIDS, and, and again, 80% of the, of, the, of the AIDS cases are there in the world, and, and they're, they're, they're sleeping with little girls that are virgins and, and they're getting AIDS because they, they believe that that's the only way that they'll be cured from their AIDS. And, and the, the epidemic that is taking place there is, again, it's on epidemic proportions. And the work that we're doing there is really changing lives. We've been able to, with education and, and with, with science and education, been able to teach and show people that, that, that and they exist and it's real and they really believe these things are true. And a lot of their medicine and a lot of their, their you know, shaman stuff and it's black magic and it's witchcraft and it's voodoo. And so that that, that, that won't cure you from AIDS. That it's science, that it's health. And it's making a difference. And the other thing we're doing in Malawi is in order to staff the orphanage, we're hiring widows. <laughs> so we get both, both of them. We get widows and orphans in, in the work in Africa. But, you know, again, as James is telling us here in this chapter that pure and undefiled religion is, is to work with widows and, and, and orphans, maybe you're not doing that. Maybe you don't have an outlet to where you're, you're, you're helping or serving or working with widows and orphans. But listen, that's not specifically or the only place or not that every one of us have to be doing specifically that. And again, we are collectively as a church doing that because we're supporting a work and a ministry that's doing that. And the same reward for those that go and those that send those that go. Provide for those that are going. But basically, pure and undefiled religion just has two simple motives behind it that every one of us can be a part of. Number one, it's always love. The things that you do for God, that you serve God, that you give of God is based on your love and and the love of God and the love of people. 
And the second concept is that we do things for people that can't pay us back. That's the concept. That's the biblical context. Do you only serve and do you only do stuff for people who you know can give you back and help you back and serve you back, can pay you back for what you give? That's not pure and undefiled religion. Pure and undefiled religion, James says, and Jesus taught, was, was doing things for those that will never be able to pay you back. You know, one of the things that we have here in our church, and so everybody knows this, and I will end with this, um, there's some information on the back table. But we, we are a part of, we have one of our, our pastors is, um, has a recovery. They, they, they want it to be um, sold as men's discipleship, but it's a drug and alcohol recovery program for men. Okay? It's in Palm Springs, California, and it's called NCIC, New Creations in Christ. And they've seen men come with, 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 a, with abuse problems, addiction problems, and they, they use Jesus as a tool to see men set free. And, and they have a very high success rate, and they've done really well. And so I'm going to ask, you know, one of the things that I've been asking God for five years, I've been saying, God, I want to be a part of helping somebody. And, and we have now this way we can help them. We can send them there. We can get them some help that are addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it's a Christian home, and it's a good work, and we're a part of it. And, and there just hasn't been the opportunity. Well, this last week, Pat and I had an amazing opportunity. And I was so blessed because we had a young man, and he, um, he, he's been addicted to heroin. He, he had his last, um, he got high the day before um, we picked him up. One of the things that happens is when you get somebody and you get them ready to go to rehab, oftentimes the statistics say the night before they've committed to go. His family did an intervention. He agreed to go. He agreed to, he agreed to go and, and try this thing out. Is that the day before they're going to go to rehab, a lot of them overdose and die. Because the next day they think, well, I'm going to rehab tomorrow and i got to do all I can tonight. It's my last chance. And everything they have and everything they can get their hands on. And, and oftentimes you'll see that where they'll, they'll end up overdosing the night before they're supposed to go to rehab. But by the grace of God, we, we were able to, to take this young man. We had to get him to the airport. We had to get him on a flight. We had to hope that he got on his flight. And then we had people on the other side ready to receive him. And, and we got a text, a call about 2 o'clock on Friday. And it said, we got him. He was there, and he's with, he's with the NCIC brothers there in, in California. The pastors there had picked him up at the airport. They're going to take him back. And they said, hey, this next week is going to be really crucial in this young man's life because he's going to go through some really serious withdrawals, and, and he's going to face some, 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 the hardest week of his life. And so really I want to, you guys to be praying for this young man, for this ministry. And, um, again, you know, it's, it's pure and undefiled religion. We, got to, we, we paid for the ticket. We, we did everything. It's free where he's going. And, and, and we're never going to get paid back for that. We didn't do it because, you know, Pat didn't take a half day off of work. And I didn't go and, and, and find this guy and bring him to the airport and do all these things because we're going to get a reward for it. We did it because we, we do it as unto God, that it's pure and undefiled religion before the Lord. And we believe and we have a big picture mentality that, that there's a reward. There's an eternal reward in the things that we do for God. And, and praise God, we got to be a part of seeing a young man's life change and hopefully when he's down there, he'll, he'll, God will get a hold of his heart. And we know no matter what, whether it's just the, because the Bible says sometimes we plant seeds, sometimes we water, and sometimes we reap a harvest. We're praying for a harvest in this young man's life. But regardless, he's going to, he's going to get a process of seeds planted, swatted, harvested, and we get to be a part of that.
and it's pure and undefiled religion. So I'm asking you guys to, um, in this week, would you guys include in your prayer ministry um, NCIC, New Creations in Christ, um, maybe this young man specifically, but there's lots of young men just like there in that ministry that you could be praying for. But we're going to be praying specifically because he's one of ours that we have there. And so um, will you guys pray for him this week? All right, let's pray.